Mark 6, 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hello, good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace, and we're so glad that you're with us. Kids, you are dismissed to your classes. Preschool over here with the orange sign and elementary with the blue sign right back there and you will head down with your teachers and we will bring you back up in time for food, don't worry. As Bo said, you have chosen a good night to be here. Not only do we get to hear about the good news of the gospel, but you may smell a faint smell of pork in the background. Uh, that is not a local restaurant, that is right here in Old Brick. So we have some pulled pork and chips and beans and cookies and all kinds of things after the service. Uh, we do meals after the service once a month for a few reasons. Uh, one of them is because people need to eat, and if you're like me, you start getting hungry about midway through the sermon. Um, also, it's a great time to get to know people. So we want to encourage you to stick around. If you need to jet afterwards and finish up that homework um, or get ready for your week, we have to-go boxes. We would love to send you with some food. Uh, put together a whole to-go meal, take it with you, uh, no problem at all. But we'd love for you to stick around so we can get to know one another. Also tonight, uh, you will see up on the screen that there's some ways to get connected. I want to draw your attention to the one that says share a prayer request. At any time, you can scan that QR code and you can share a prayer request with us. You can save that link and you can send a prayer request anytime. Uh, Bo and I pray for you, the elders and I pray for you. We have a community group leaders prayer request. There's a lot of different ways we can pray for you and we would love to do that. Another way that you can receive prayer help is right after the service. So right after the service, there'll be a couple of prayer team people right up here. And while you're waiting for the food to get out, you can come on forward and they would love to pray with you about any need, big or small. As Rebecca just read for us, we're continuing our series in the book of Mark, where we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're taking a look at the authority that he claimed. We're taking a look at what it meant that he was a king. We're taking a look at what his kingdom was like. And in many of these 
uh, stories and in many of these narratives and in many of these chapters, we've found things that God is asking us to do and we've found things about Jesus that we needed to see. This week, we get some very direct application because we take a look at how Jesus sent out the 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 that he had called to himself. We've talked a lot about why they followed Jesus. Well, tonight we're going to look at what he called them to do and also what he called us to do if we say we follow Jesus. Would you pray with me as we open God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it shows us, Father, that you are worthy of all of our praise shows us Jesus, who is the King of all kings, shows us the work of the Spirit, and we rejoice and we worship in that. God, we also worship you because you give us step-by-step instructions in your word. You show us uh, what you are doing and what you want to do, and God, I pray that we would see wonderful things from your word tonight. We pray that we would see what you have called each one of us to do. God, we pray that we would see both your general call on your disciples, but then we would even be bold enough to ask for a specific call on each of our lives. And we pray that ultimately we would glorify your son, Jesus. Jesus, you're worthy of our lives and our praise. And Father, we pray that you would send us out from here, ready to be your apostles, ready to be your disciples, ready to be those that take the good news of the gospel to a world that's in desperate need of good news. Father, there's bad news everywhere. Father, we pray that you would speak through your Spirit's power tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 6, you'll see up on the screen verses 1 through 13. If you would open your Bibles with me or your Bible app with me. I'm not going to put the verses up on the screen tonight, but we are going to go through a few of the sections here. So first we have Mark 6 verse 1, and it sets, sets the stage. He says, he went away from there, and he came to his hometown... And his disciples followed him. So just to refresh our memory, how many of you are from Iowa City or the Iowa City area, born and raised? One, two, three, there's about 12 and four of them are my children. Okay, that's pretty normal. We have usually about 10% that were actually born here or less. So a lot of us are not from here. So we can all relate to the experience of going back home, going back to our hometowns. Um, I lived in my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri for 22 years, and I've lived here for 17, but Kansas City will always be my hometown. I know lots of people there. My, the majority of my family is there. Um, I don't have to look at a map when I'm in Kansas City. It's my hometown. Going back to your hometown can bring on a lot of different emotions because we're welcomed back, to in, back into town in many different ways. Here we see Jesus in his hometown, the hometown of Nazareth. We see what it's like when he goes back to his hometown. It can be a little surreal and weird or even awkward or painful for us. Well, Jesus can relate to that. Let's look at verses 2 through 6. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is it not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus is not respected in his own hometown. Not only that, but his power seems to be limited. He's not doing the same amazing miracles that he's doing in other places. It says he just put his hands on a few sick people. This is a direct contrast. The reason it says few here is because he'd been healing many. And as we've seen, he had spiritual authority. He had physical authority. He had authority over life and death. We've seen that in story after story. But here in his hometown seems he's limited. Why is that? Jesus, not respected in his hometown, it says here that there was a lack of faith. That lack of faith was for two main reasons. We're going to get more into this in a couple weeks when we talk about faith, miracles, and unbelief. Uh, So we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. But two reasons that I want to point out tonight why Jesus was not able to do as many miracles and why we see this lack of faith. First, because it was his hometown, there wasn't just a lack of faith among individual people. There was a corporate lack of faith. There was a societal, a familial lack of faith. There were lots of people that didn't have enough faith. This lack of faith kept people from coming to Jesus. When we don't have faith that something is going to work, we often don't even try. So they they say here, isn't this Jesus the carpenter? In the original Greek, basically they're just saying, isn't that the carpenter? The one carpenter in town? The carpenter's son? That's all this is. They don't use the word Messiah. They don't use the word son of man. They say the carpenter. Nobody in these other villages or communities or on the other side of the sea is calling Jesus a carpenter, and they're calling him a carpenter. There's a lack of faith. There's a lack of coming to Jesus because they don't think he can do anything for them. Our lack of faith, their lack of faith, is not just a lack of thinking rightly or a lack of not having the right feelings of faith, but it's actually a lack of coming to Jesus. They didn't even go to Jesus. It wasn't just that they didn't think rightly or have enough faith to muster up. They didn't go to Jesus. They showed they really didn't have faith in him. So the first reason is there was a corporate lack of faith. And then the second reason is one we've spoke of already because it was his hometown. If you're a medical professional, you may be familiar with the experience of people coming up to you randomly and asking you for medical advice. A lot of times it's your very own family that is asking you for medical advice. Can you look at this spot that I have? And they lift up their shirt at Target or whatever. It's very awkward. My wife is a respiratory therapist, has been a medical professional for 20 years. And people just have this random idea that she probably wears scrubs. And so they're like, you're a nurse, right? She's like, no, but try me. Let's see, let's see what you're going to ask. Nurses, doctors, medical professionals, even people that work in the hospital get asked their medical advice all the time. Not so as a pastor. Not so as a pastor. My family, the only thing that my family requires of me is both sides of the family. If I'm at a family function, it's like, oh, 
we know who's praying for the meal. There's a reverend in the house. Yeah, I have stories about that. I'll save them for another time. We have other things to talk about. People don't come to me and ask me advice in my own family. People rarely even ask me to perform their wedding, baptize them. A lot of the pastoral duties that I do for people in my congregation, random acquaintances, or just someone that's looking for a pastor, but my own family rarely, if ever, comes to me. My brother, a while back, was having some theological questions, and so he went to this pastor that he didn't even really know. It was like a a pastor of a family member or something, and he just dropped it in a conversation. Yeah, I had some, some theological questions I was wrestling with, so I went and talked to this pastor that I've never talked to before. Like, do you know what I do? This is a little bit of what was happening to Jesus. My family doesn't come to me as a pastor because I'm just a guy. I'm just the carpenter guy. I'm just the brother. I'm just the son. I'm just the cousin. I'm just the nephew. I'm just the whatever. Right? They've, they've seen me live in their home. They've seen me at Christmas. This is what Jesus is running into in his hometown. The next section, Jesus sends out the 12, verse 7. And he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. So the disciples are sent out. The disciples were sent out. The disciples sometimes are called apostles. That's a sent out one. The disciples are followers of Jesus. That's what we've been looking at. Jesus calls them and they follow him and they learn from him and they call him rabbi. But then now for the first time, he is sending them out. He's been the one healing. He's been the one praying for people. He's been the one teaching. Now he is sending the disciples out to do the things that they have been watching Jesus do all over the place. They're being sent out. This should be a clue to us that disciples follow Jesus and learn from Jesus, but then at the right time, they're also sent out. So we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight taking a look at how they were sent out and then make some application for how we are also sent out. So first... How are they sent out? They're sent out with a purpose. They're sent out with a purpose. The language here of what Jesus is asking them to do should sound familiar to us because in Mark chapter 1, we read the purposes of Jesus. Mark 1, 14 through 15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He is sending them out with the same message that he had. They're being sent out with a purpose. Romans 8 says that we are heirs with God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. So we're given the same purposes as Christ. Christ came to show that the kingdom of God had now been fulfilled. He's now giving them that same message. 
Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are my co-laborers. Jesus has proven to this point that he can do it all on his own. He doesn't need their help. He can heal many. He can raise the dead. He has authority over the spirit, spirit world. He has authority over the physical world. He has authority over death itself. He could do it all himself. And yet, he invites them in as co-laborers. And now he is sending them out. They're given a purpose. They're given a purpose to make disciples. N.T. Wright in his commentary on the book of Mark says that this obeying, what it looks like to obey the sending call of Jesus always involves two things. It always involves listening to the prophetic call of God, same kind of call that Jesus is giving to the disciples here. It's listening to the call of God, listening to when Jesus says go, and then the second step is listening to the needs of the suffering. Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom. Jesus says, repent from the bad news and turn to the good news. And now he is sending them with the same message. So first, he sends them with a purpose. Next, they're sent out together. They go two by two. We're going to see this pattern throughout scripture that the disciples, the apostles, the 72 the first church, they're sent out two by two, and the reason is they need each other. One reason they need each other is in the Old Testament, you needed two witnesses to verify that something actually took place. And one of the primary things that these disciples, these apostles are doing is witnessing to the life, soon the death, then the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 John, John says, what we have seen with our eyes and touched and experienced is God himself. They're going out as witnesses, but they're also going out because they need each other. None of the disciples could take the gospel out and do what God had asked them to do without a partner. And when you read a little bit about them and when we know their background, we see that they were all limited human beings just like you and me. They had strengths and weaknesses. They had things they could get distracted by and purposes they could follow. They needed one another. They needed to do it together. They needed one another's gifts and one another's stories to come out in order for the mission to be accomplished, in order for the message and the good news to go out. They needed one another. And if you read the book of Acts, you keep seeing the apostles, the disciples, the early church working together encouraging one another, lifting one another up, rebuking one another when necessary, helping one another understand the full nature of the gospel. They needed one another. They go out with power. They go out with power. They are given the spiritual authority that Jesus has. They're given this authority. If we look back here, it says that they went out And they start casting out these unclean spirits that Jesus has been casting out. He gives them authority over the unclean spirits. He is giving them authority. Jesus says, I have authority and now I am giving it to you. I am knighting you with this power to have authority over the spiritual world. And to go out and do this healing, I'm going to give you authority over the physical world. He passes this authority onto them. Ephesians 1 describes this power as the immeasurable greatness of his power 
toward us who believe. It's according to the working of his great might that he first worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. This is Paul doing a couple of things in Ephesians. He's reminding us of the power of Jesus, but now he's saying Jesus that same power that rose him from the grave and he ascended to be with the Father, that power has now been given to us. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is doing his power through the Spirit's work through the church. So he gives them his power. It's important for us to see that this power is given by Jesus. A lot of people claim to have authority and power. A lot of people try to gain power and authority. But we have to see that it is given by Jesus. And it starts inward and then goes outward. A lot of people say, I should have authority or you should follow me. But authority is given by Jesus. Power is given by Jesus and then works inside out. These disciples have no authority of their own. Rabbinical school dropouts, tax collectors, zealots, sinners like you and me, their authority comes from Jesus. They're told, we learn more about this power when we see that they are told to shake the dust off of their sandals if a a town or if a city won't accept them. We need to go into a little bit of history to see what this is about. So the Jews in the first century, when they would go to a Gentile land before they would come back into the Holy Land, before they would come back into Jerusalem, when they would come back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, like we learned about a couple weeks ago, they would literally dust the sand and the dirt and the mud and the poop off their sandals So they wouldn't track Gentile dirt and poop and mud and sand back into the Holy Land. Jesus is using that language for a reason. And he does something remarkable. He tells them to do that in any city that will not receive them. Any city. So before, the Jews would only wipe their feet if they were coming from a Gentile land back into the Holy Land. But Jesus said... No, it's not about Jew and Gentile anymore. It's about who believes. And those that believe, those who receive you, those that show hospitality towards you and listen to you, they are the ones that you can help and you can allow them to help you. But if they don't believe, if they don't come to you, if they don't set a table for you, if they don't welcome you with hospitality, you move on. You move on to the next city. This is a reminder to us that they did not have the power to save. It was the Spirit's work. It was not in their power to save people. We, like they, will find that we will never change the world until we realize that we can't. We will never change the world until we realize that we can't. It is so easy to get off on our own agenda, trying to save the world. 
We try to save our kids. We try to save our spouse. We try to save the church. We try to save Iowa City. We try to save the world. We try to save our siblings. We try to save our parents. It's exhausting. It's because we're trying to do the work of Jesus. We'll never change the world until we realize that Jesus changes the world through us. Jesus changes the world through us. He could do it without us. He does do it without us. He does do it despite us at times. But just like the disciples, out of his goodness, he invites us in as co-laborers with him. So we're sent out in power. We're also sent out with provision. They're told, you don't need to take all these things. He lists all these things you don't need to take with you because I'm going to provide for you everything that you need. Jesus has a lot to say about how we should think about our possessions, our stuff, and he has a lot to say about how he will provide everything that we need. There's this incredible passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 where Jesus talks uh, for several verses about storing up treasure in heaven, not hoarding things, not valuing things over the things of the kingdom, not valuing physical possessions or money or security or affluence, but instead having stewardship and giving things away and not having more than we need in order to lay up treasures in heaven. He talks about giving things away, and then right after that is the section on do not be anxious. Jesus is saying the key to not being anxious that you'll have enough is to give it all away. It's very similar to what he's telling the disciples here. Don't take these things with you. They're just going to slow you down. They're just going to keep you from doing what I actually want to do, and I'm going to take care of everything that you need. I have set people in places where you need hospitality. I have put food where you need food. I have provided clothes when you need clothes. I have provided for you just like I provided for my people in the desert. When they wandered around in the desert for 40 years and had all the food that they needed and their sandals never wore out. I buy new flip-flops every summer. Theirs never wore out. Jesus provided for them everything that they need. In my Bible reading plan, I've been reading in 1 Kings, and God sends Elijah out to be his prophet, and he says, don't take anything with you. Don't take any food or water, because the place I tell you to stop, the ravens are going to bring you bread, and I'm going to fill the brook with water, because I'm going to give you what you need. You speak my words, and I'll give you what you need. He promises his provision. He promises his daily bread. He even promises rewards in heaven when we do his will. Lastly, he sends us with his presence. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go away for a little while. I'm going to die, rise again. I'm going to go away for a little while, meaning he'll be back, but I'm going to go for a little while. And you're going to be filled with sorrow, but it's better if I go. Because I'm going to send the Spirit to help you. He says, I'm going to be with you all the time. I'm going to be with you all the time. When my kids are very young, they are not comforted 
by deep theological takes that I want to give them or logic or rationale or trying to talk them out of being afraid. I was able to do that with one of my younger kids this week. Just rationally talk him through things and then he wasn't afraid anymore. Piece of cake, right? When they're young, first off, doesn't work. When they're crying, when they're upset, when they're terrified, when they're having a bad dream, none of that works. The only thing that works is saying, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm here. It's okay. Even physical hugs, holding hands. I was walking through the parking lot, and my youngest had his hands full of all the goodness they give children after soccer games. Uh, He had all his goodness that they give children after soccer games, but he put it all in one hand, and he reached out his hand, and he grabbed the loop in my sweatpants like this. So he would be holding on to me as I went through the parking lot. I didn't tell him to. He just did it because he knows he's safe if he's with dad. He tells the disciples, I'm going to send you out and it's going to be scary. I send you like sheeps going out to wolves. He even starts to tell some of them, you're going to give your very life for me. But he also tells them in Matthew 28, that he will be with them always. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says he'll go with us. I don't know if you're like this, But for me, it's easy for me to remember that I need a lot of help when I'm preaching, when I'm sharing my faith cold turkey with someone, when I'm praying for someone that may or may not be possessed by a demon, when someone has a chronic illness that I've been praying for for years, I know I need God's power. But in each 24-hour period, I'm like, I got this. And then it just usually takes me a few hours to figure out, I don't got this, I don't got this, I don't got this, I'm in too deep. He says he'll go with us through things big and small. He says you're going to be able to heal and raise the dead and pray out demons, and I'll also give you another tunic if you need it. I'll also give you your daily bread if you need it. I'll give you some place to stay if you need it. He says, I'll send with you my presence. And we need his presence. They needed his presence. This is all very informative, hopefully. But it's not enough. We have to first make sure that we know that this call is for us. It is way too easy to give a bunch of qualifiers about why this doesn't apply to us. There's even whole theological camps that think that these instructions and this power was just given to these guys. I think Luke 10 tells us something different. Luke 10, starting in verse 1, it's a long section. Bear with me, it's worth reading the whole thing. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place 
where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. This sounds very familiar. Same instructions, same mission, same authority, same call, same purpose, same provisions given to these 72 That means that the purpose that he's called us to, the fact that he's sent us out together, the fact that he gives us his power, the fact that he gives us everything that we need, and the fact that he gives us his presence is not just for them, but it's for us. And we need it. We need it. It is so easy for me right now to get excited about starting a church and forget the purpose that church exists to begin with. It's so easy for me to think that I can do it on my own and that other people need me, but maybe I don't need them. It's so easy for me to try to do everything in my own power and not just start churches, talking raising kids, loving my wife, so easy to think that I have what I need because I'm so affluent. It's so easy to forget that Christ offers his presence with me because sometimes I just feel alone. We need these promises. We need this call on our life. First, we need to remember our purpose. Friends, if we forget the good news of what Jesus has done for us, we don't have anything to share. We need to remember the purpose for which we're called. We need to remember the purpose for which we're sent out. And I'm going to be honest with you. I came back from sabbatical crystal clear on the fact that I have no more time in my life and no more energy for playing church. I'm sick of church meetings. I'm sick of talking about stuff that never happens. I'm sick of spending time and energy and money on things that don't make disciples. We need to remember the purpose of why we follow Jesus and why we know good news and how lost this world is. Next, we need to do this together. We live in an individualistic yet globally connected society. We are connected superficially with more people than is imaginable, yet we're isolated and lonely. We are affluent 
and we have great ability to influence other people, yet our society lacks the character to, to provide strength and good news from the inside out. It's a dangerous recipe for isolation, loneliness, lostness, depression. We need to do this together and we need to offer other people the good news of knowing their God and knowing others in biblical community. Third, we need the power of God. We need the power of God to remember where power comes from. We need to remember that it's Christ in us that is the power. We have so much theological education. We have so many resources that we can forget where real power comes from and we start doing it in our own strength. Fourth, we need provision. We need God to provide our daily bread. Whether we're sharing the gospel, healing someone, trying to raise our kids, trying to make it through school, trying to have a career, trying to figure out what in the world God wants us to do, trying to share Christ with a society that doesn't care at all, we need the power of God. And lastly, we need his presence. We desperately need him to go with us. The most comforting thing for me when overcoming my own rampant anxiety is knowing that he will be with me. Knowing that he will be with me. It's actually the only thing I can count on, that he will be with me. No matter what I face, he will be with me. I'm an old man in this church. You're like, duh. Uh, Yesterday, uh, a four-year-old, five-year-old, maybe she was six, I don't know, but she told me at uh, my son's soccer game, uh, she asked if I was 30, and I gave her a sucker. Um, (laughs) But I'm like, oh no, I am not 30, sorry. You may think I'm an old man. Uh, As of this week, I have a 15-year-old. So in a lot of ways, I am an old man. I'm starting to have older kids. And I've learned a lot in 15 years, but I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I've reached the point in my life where I now realize my parents didn't know what they were doing either. It's terrifying. How do we survive childhood? As soon as I think I know something, I don't. I need the presence of God. I need to know that his spirit will prompt me. His spirit will teach me. I need to know that he is with me always to the end of the age. We need that promise in our life, the promise of his presence. We often think about God's grace as being somewhere on a timeline Somewhere in the past when Jesus died for us, somewhere in the past when we prayed a prayer at church camp, somewhere in the future when we get to be with him in heaven. This is not what Jesus is talking about and this is not what the New Testament writers are talking about when they say the word grace. We need God's varied graces for all of life, all the time. We need his good news all the time It's what we stand on. 
It's what we share with others. It's the hope for our marriage. It's the hope for our families. It's the hope for our workplace. It's hope for a world that is so lost, so lost, so lost and broken. No answers. No one has answers right now. No one has answers for what we do about rumors of war and wars all over, the lostness that we find amongst the affluence in America. More and more students getting education and riches and opportunities and being more and more depressed, isolated, and lonely. We need God's presence for ourselves and we need the promise of God's presence to share with others. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for our testimony of your grace. We are trophies of your grace. We are vessels of your mercy. And we just carry it around in a jar of clay. We need you, Jesus, to fill us. We need your spirit to guide us. We need your power working through us. We need your power and your help today. Father, I pray that we would remember that your call and your power were not just promised to your disciples or these 72, but as promised to us. We pray that we would stop trying to do it on our own and trust in you. I pray that we would have the faith to come to you and be healed. I pray that we would have the faith to come to you and receive from you. Father, thank you that you don't just give us grace at our moment of salvation and someday in the future, but you are giving us grace right here, right now, through your spirit's presence, through the promise of the gospel, through the fact that we are in your hands. We worship you tonight.